Making a hit record is tough, but maintaining success is another skill entirely. On The Art of Longevity, we explore the artist's experience of the music business from the inside. I want to find out what separates those artists and bands that have survived decades in the music business from all those who've fallen by the wayside. We follow a narrative inspired by a quote from Brett Anderson of Suede, who said that all successful artists have followed a similar career arc, like Stations of the Cross. The struggle, success, excess, disintegration, and if you're lucky, enlightenment. With insights and stories for music fans, aspiring musicians, and creators, this is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Emily Haynes of Metric, welcome to The Art of Longevity. Well, thank you. I love the concept behind this conversation. It's a topic that's dear to my heart. <laughs> I think you're very well qualified to speak on this one from the <laughs> band's point of view. So thank you. So first of all, where are you? Are you back over the water or are you still in Europe? I am. Yeah, we just wrapped in Berlin. We had such a great time, London, Paris, Berlin. And uh, I've got a little bit of time before we start with the Mexico, Peru, Chile, Brazil. <laughs> so this is a perfect time to uh, catch up with you. Yeah, I missed your London show. I was in Stockholm. I was sorry to miss it. This was the acoustic sessions that you do with Jimmy. It was so surprising, actually, because the um, I don't I don't know. I didn't really have like a a big expectation, but you know, we've done some acoustic things here and there, and I thought it would be mellow, and it wasn't. <laughs> they were people were singing from like the first line so loud like we almost felt like it was sort of like a karaoke feeling where jimmy and i were like do we even need to be here like you guys just want to sing it was an amazing feeling but you know also kind of like some deep cuts like we open with artificial nocturne you know it's acoustic version i don't know how you're recognizing it so just like a bunch of brits all of a sudden being like i'm just as fucked up as they say i was like this is gonna be fun it was like punk rock minus the volume so it's cool. Okay, so look, you're spoiling your fans a little bit. You've made a second album. Can you tell me in, in your own words how what the relationship is between Formentera 1 and 2? How do the albums sit side by side? Yeah, well, so the whole thing is an 18-song journey, and we weren't really sure how to best release it. We kind of sat and, you know, we did all this work during, obviously, everyone knows what 2020 to 2023 was like in terms of the pandemic so we were we were working we were heads down and we were like we just got to make this beautiful thing we look at it this form and terror concept of a sonic escape and it's you know even with being harsh and editing and cutting all kinds of things we were like this is an 18 song statement well you know it's a real luxury to have of like what would be the most fun for people best way to release this so i always envy people being able to do the surprise release so the decision was made of like, let's release, let's announce on the day, the one year anniversary of Formentera, that there's a second half and that this is in fact a double album. The weirdest part of it was the sequencing because there's no much like that time, you know, that we live through. Time was sort of going forward, backward, and there's no chronological logic to the two albums. I still don't know how we decided on the sequencing, but, you know, songs like Days of Oblivion, that was, I think, maybe the very first thing that we recorded. And it ended up, you know, track 
whatever it is for of the second album. So there was some internal logic. I'm very happy with how it played out, but when I've tried to explain it, I, there's no reason, rhyme or reason that would be something I could convey other than just picture us in front of a huge whiteboard and like lots of arrows. Yeah, I think it works great as a double album, but it's the way to do a double album in the modern age, isn't it? Where, you know, Daniel Ek won't let musicians take a day off. <laughs> whatever yeah, it is totally. and, and it is it is sort of on trend were you thinking about that from the perspective of i'm thinking of the national who just did a similar thing where they kind of dro- dropped a surprise album it does seem to be the thing to do i mean your canadian brother drake has released a song every 16 days for the last five years so that's another uh, way to do it <laughs> did you talk about this possibly being a double album how did you decide to to make it form and terror two as part of the same you know as part of the same story yeah well i guess you know as i was saying in 22 when we were preparing to release the first album we had the whole body of work so that we knew we had a double album so there was no question and it was really just a matter of how to best finish it and how to best sequence it and we were fortunate enough to you know rejoin civilization at at the end of our Doom Scroller tour in 2022, and um, go, even when I'm saying the years now, I'm like, is that the right year? I think so. And finish at uh, Motorbase. So, no, it was in 2023 that we finished at Motorbase in Paris. So, that was a nice, like, full circle because we had been very inspired by Air and Sebastian Tellier, and they worked at that studio. So, it's cool. And have you made it to Formentera yet? I have actually, I went in there before all of these times, um, several times. Um, I used to spend a lot of time in Ibiza and uh, it's a beautiful place, but I haven't been since we've dedicated our lives to this imaginary version of it. So what made you want to make a record that was about that escape or that sanctuary or whatever that means to you? What was the connection between the music and the island in this case? Well, we were uh, in very deep lockdown in Canada. We had made a big move, a lot of big upheavals that happened. Of, you know, I was living in Los Angeles and I went from that to living in a place that I have in the woods, deep rural reality. We've had a recording studio in Toronto, downtown Toronto, for 15 years that we disassembled and moved into a church that we bought, um, also in this rural hamlet. So, you know, in terms of lifestyle and you know, the general sense of this being a major moment for so many people and a lot of people struggled in ways far worse than we did, but we were just trying to make the most of the fact that, you know, we really had no idea what would happen. So when things were getting very bleak, there was, I remember one day in the studio, we were like, we need some sort of guiding concept here. And there was a book that we had in the studio that said like a thousand escapes to make before you die it's a book i've had forever of like paradise places and i turned to that page and we were working on the music for the song that would become formentera that day and we were like works for me i'm like i've been there i can vouch for it it's special it's beautiful let's just imagine that we're there instead of up to our ears in snow for you know the like foreseeable past and the foreseeable future and then I, you know, I leaned really heavily on Terry Gilliam's Brazil, which I thought more people were familiar with that film. <laughs> Sounds like you are, but uh, to me, it's such a classic. And you're, I was like, I hope people won't think it's too on the nose. It's like, oh, actually, no one really noticed. But the font, 
the idea, you know, in that film that it's this dystopian world and he and that song and he's just it has nothing to do with Brazil, but it's in his mind that he can be the version of himself that he wants to be. So So when did you first come across that film? I watched it like forever, I feel like. Whenever it I feel like it was one of those early, like very special movies that was important to me, like with Nail and I and uh, <laughs> that movie. And then I actually met Terry Gilliam and in a very weird twist, what the last film that he made with Heath Ledger, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, the night before he passed away, we were texting and he was uh, asking me to se- giving me the address to send him music because he was pitching us to do the music for that film. And then he tragically died. So I feel this weird connection, very like multiverse connection to Terry Gilliam. But that movie, it stands up so well. And, you know, he, the thing he said um, in a talk about it was like, the reason he was able to do it is he didn't know it was impossible. <laughs> and, it, and so yeah, I love that idea, you know, and like, and then the, the marketing just got like so botched and no one understood. They were like, Brazil, what is this like a, you know, tourism movie? It's like, no, it's a massive work of art that I feel like has been referenced. Uh, I'm so glad you know it. I was, I was getting lonely with my cultural references. I do know it, and I'm a Terry Gilliam fan as well. So we could talk about him for the for the rest of the conversation. I know, let's so do let's a move on quickly, but let's yeah, do yeah, exactly. let's do a separate podcast on Terry Gilliam. But what an inspiration for your musical concepts to think about. I mean, often you know, I speak to artists, and they do have a very visual, cinematic ideal behind the music. Yeah, and I think that comes across with Foreman Terry. So just to find out that Terry Gilliam's involved in that is wonderful. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Bowers & Wilkins makes some of the world's finest audio products, from the iconic 800 series loudspeakers, trusted by Abbey Road Studios for over 40 years, to the flagship PX8 wireless headphones. This is music as the artist intended you to hear it. Okay, so I have spent a wonderful couple of weeks just getting familiar with your catalogue. And your catalogue is great, I have to say. Oh, thank you. I thought I lost touch at Grow Up and Blow Away, but then I was familiar with fantasies. But then after that, I just wasn't as familiar with your work. And I, I feel like listening back, I kind of missed the best of you in many ways. And I'm interested, just taking Form and Terra out of the equation because it's your recent work, do you have a favorite? I feel as though we synthetica, a lot of things came together on that album in terms of really refining this sound and identity. I like the artwork, I like the themes. I'm really proud of that album. So when you've got to this stage, you've been you've been in the game for a while. This is the art of longevity. I'm interested in your feeling now in making a record so enjoying the process versus the finished article and getting the record out there which one gives you the biggest sense of achievement or satisfaction or buzz uh yeah i mean it's sort of they're they're so interconnected and without the other i would be lost so i feel like that was part of what was so challenging about this sort of lockdown years the plague years or whatever we're referring to them as like because everything was so was so inverted and confused, there was no outlet for the achievement of the thing. 
And I think it, for some people, if you're if you're not both writer and performer, and then throwing in the fact that we're an independent label in the purest sense, you know, and we've Jimmy and I are running everything with a very small team, so we're involved in all the stuff. Then when when there's block the two of two of the three areas are blocked, and all there is is writing, you know, I feel like it was really. For my mental health, it was really challenging because the writing side is so completely different from the other two. Like I love the moment when I've already I've hunched over the piano as much as I can hunch. You know, it's like I I write very deeply, very alone. It gets weird, and then it's always so. I you know I'm so happy when you know to your point I get to rejoin with my friends and put on something fucking sparkly and remember that the point is to make people connect with their emotions and have a good time. And then it, you know, it pulls me back into the world, go stay in a hotel, you know? So I'm not trying to like not answer the question, but I actually feel like without any, without one part, the whole thing falls apart. No, it's interesting the way you say that, because I think what you're saying is it feels like it's a very separate process in many ways, you know, from you sitting down and writing alone as you say, sometimes getting dark and then all the way through to bringing that to the band and then putting it on record and then taking it to the fans on stage feels like a very, very long journey. It is. And it's supposed to, it's supposed to flow like that, you know, from A to Z. But yeah, during 2020 to to 23, it kind of was just sort of the, the snake was eating its tail. It was perplexing. And taking the Formentera tracks out acoustically when you get back on tour, presumably you have the full band and you're going to give it the full works. So you must be looking forward to that. Have you played any of those songs in, in full yet from Formentera 2? Um, yeah, we actually did. We did another, um, and you know, you mentioned earlier, like we've been spoiling our fans because I, and I would say that's true because it's just such a deep connection we have. And the whole idea is, is exactly that. Like, let's have, for those who care, let's just make this the most beautiful and deep experience and not be too preoccupied with the people who don't, you know? And it's a great, I really recommend it as a way to enjoy your life and work. New people are always finding us, but it's a, you know, the objective is not this sort of audition. Otherwise your whole life could be that, you know? The week before we came to Europe, we went back to these club shows and did New York, LA, Toronto, and these very small clubs and we played only Old World Underground, which is our first album, and Formentera 1 and 2, and nothing in between. Um, but so we played uh, Who Would You Be For Me? We played Doom Scroller, All Comes Crashing, Just The Once, Nothing Is Perfect. So there's a good, a good representation from the two albums of a play. But for this tour that's coming up, I really, I know, like, the interviews have been so funny. because like the one radio station guy in Chile, he's like, you know, we've been playing Help I'm Alive on the radio for 15 years. Like, you know, when were you guys going to come? And I was like, I feel you, man. But this, you got to understand, this is a, this is a lean operation. And the <laughs> fact that we managed to like, you know, participate in the world, it's such a goal for us. It's like, we, we, you know, it's not fancy. And we put ourselves through a lot to be part of the world as opposed to being like this regional arena act. You know, it's like, I don't care. I don't, our egos are like, it doesn't matter to me. Let's, if we can get there, we want to play for the people who feel it. But, you know, for those shows, there's no way I'm going to be like, you waited 15 years and now I'm not playing those songs. Like, we're going to play all the hits. You know, we'll play all the stuff from 
fantasies and synthetics. So. Yeah, when they've waited that long. Okay, so yeah. we, we, we're going to come on to you as the CEO of a business uh, in oh a my moment, God. de facto. Just in going back over the catalog, I was reading the reviews as well over the years. And one of the things that just kept coming out as a theme, they were saying like, uh, yeah, metric, it just continues to do their own thing and be immune to trends. I mean, how much do you feel that's true? And in the, particularly in the latter half of your career, or let's say in this most recent phase, who are the influences that you've taken on? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these things are sort of also mysterious to me. The way that we arrive at a decision, everything from like a sonic standpoint to a visual to lyrical themes, it's terrifying to me that we really have no idea what we're doing. It's all kind of down to this feeling, which uh, I'm fascinated by and committed to because it's, you know, obviously it's the whole band, but particularly it's me and Jimmy. It's this like thing we embarked on together, you know, really as kids in 98. And it wasn't like, we know exactly what it is and it's just a matter of doing it. It's the whole process has been this discovery of like, what is it? And all I know is when I feel it, that I know it. And if I don't, it doesn't ever see the light of day. So I think that if it's true, that immunity that we are benefiting from is just because we've really been quite, um, I think, just so stubborn and impractical in our commitment to doing exactly what we fucking want. And it's just sort of had this, you know, fortifying effect, this like anti-fragile kind of phenomenon, you know, and also just like establishing, again, not really with any understanding of what the hell we're doing, but on that first album, when I listen to IOU, the first track on Old World Underground, I'm like, you know, that's this, they're the seeds of everything we've done on Formentera too. Like Doom Scrollers in there to me, it's this sort of your genre is no genre sort of loop. So I think, I think those things have worked in our favor. Yeah. It's post genre. And you've got that range. So going back in your catalog was really interesting because you kind of started out with a kind of bedroom pop electronic sensibility then it was very much indie rock you know guitar to the fore and then with grow up and blown away you came back with the bedroom pop but more polished and then from fantasies it seemed to be more cohesive you found your sound but there's a range there so you know i'm thinking on form and terror too with tracks like just the once which is kind of disco in a sense. Regret Disco. Regret Disco. Uh, And then Descendants, which kind of steps up into Electronica and gets a bit ravey. But then you go back to the core of Indie, and there's a lot of acoustic work on Formentera too. So you do have a a lot of range in there to work with. Are you conscious of that, or does it all come down to feeling? I mean, there's, yeah, there's, it's like we notice after it's, we've done it. I really enjoy and feel really privileged to have a conversation like this with you and take the time to consider these things because I discover it kind of along with everybody else. Whereas it's, it's not until someone points out to me that there's a lot of acoustic guitar from a jar that I'm like, that is true. I was, I did not really consciously <laughs> register that, you know, but I mean, I think what is happening, particularly on the Formentera albums is like to your, I love that term post genre because it's now sort of just this mission to like access and convey complexity of emotion and have like a genuine therapeutic functionality for people. Like I'm kind of 
obsessed with the idea of usefulness. And I keep getting validation from that from people who are in like severe medical predicaments where the phenomenon of where they've used our music to aid them in like pain <laughs> relief. I mean, really concrete things that are, you know, like really profound to have someone share with you. And, and uh, again, like just like an insane privilege to be part of their life to that degree. But, you know, and then the usual, not to, you know, minimize it, but like the salve of, for mental health and just, just this idea that like you access these things and articulate articulate them along with a sound and then energize them is kind of this sort of formula like the dark places it's like you can't you know stay there that like if you're going through hell keep going it's not like come hang out with me in the darkness it's like i know we all have it i'm there with you but we gotta like move physically <laughs> through it so i think that's why the sonics have evolved yeah no, the sonics that you described there do follow, I think, a physical process of healing, which is, you know, you come from a dark place of melancholy or suffering, and then, you know, you you can reach euphoria from there. So, no, I absolutely get that. I think we're right at the beginning of the days, actually, of what music can be done to treat health, you know, way beyond music therapy. There's some really interesting stuff going on in, in that space that we could, again, talk about for a another edition of the podcast which is not about metrics career but uh yeah i feel like we could have a series because you know and perhaps we will follow up on this but the one the one instance of the person without going into huge depth on this we can continue the conversation on other themes but you know she's a person who was afflicted with really severe physical deformities when she was born and um she started showing up at concerts and, you know, we'd see her at the front row and she came to some meet and greets, whatever. We're like, what's up? And, you know, it's a person who's really been handed a, a hard, like, path in life. And we got to know her because she'd show up at all these shows. And it's fascinating because her physical representation is just like, it's like, okay, that's that's a lot. You're dealing with a lot. But it, her energy, you can just feel it. It's like, what's up? She's this presence in the room that everyone wants to be around her. But she explained to us that the song Monster Hospital from Live It Out when she was going through one of her hundreds of surgeries, it was the song that helped her because on top of the fact that she's been afflicted with these challenges in, from birth, she is allergic to anesthesia. <laughs> she's telling me this and I'm like, dude, what? And she's like, yeah, I can't. So I have to have all these surgeries and they can't do anything about the pain. So Monster Hospital which is a perverse application that I'm just like, I don't, you know, even that is an example of a song of like, I don't know what I was on about, but it obviously had served a purpose. Yeah. So really profound. And even whenever I talk about her, I get kind of shivery and freaked out because I'm just feel so like, first of all, grasping the scope of real suffering that people encounter and that there's some function that we're, as you say, only starting to perhaps understand what music is doing to your like you know beyond vibrating the hairs in your ears yeah. from a physiological standpoint so. yeah no you're making me shiver describing that no i know but I, <laughs> I like that concept of music as a talisman you know it's like something you can put on whether it's a track or an album or a band that you love you just put it on you know it's going to protect you because it works you know from that perspective it's very very powerful thanks for listening to the art of longevity i hope you're enjoying the conversation so far 
Please take a moment to rate the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen, and do spread the word. Also, you can sign up via the Song Sommelier webpage for our newsletter, artwork, and much more. Back to the conversation. So look, I want to go back a little bit to, as you mentioned, the early days in New York, because you moved to New York at the turn of this century when it was there was something very exciting going on musically, and it was the time of the White Stripes and Interpol and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and all, all of those contemporaries that you came up with. Just take me back to that time. Did you feel in that moment that you were part of that movement, that you found your people and that you kind of found your destiny, or was it much more complicated than that? Well, it's actually, it's a pretty classic, and now in retrospect, just I wouldn't have it any other way, but, you know, sort of misadventure is that, you know, Jimmy and I moved to New York in 98, trying to find a place to live. You can't live in Manhattan. There's no, you know, I'm romanticizing the time when my mother and father lived there in the early 60s, late 50s, the real, this like Greenwich Village artist scene, you know, and even the 70s with Velvet Underground, Lou, all that, you know, it's just Manhattan was inaccessible. So finding this loft in Williamsburg, and it's got all these rooms, right? So Jimmy's going to try to find people who rent it. And the first person to to come by to check it out is Nick Sinner. So who would, of course, end up being guitarist. Yeah, yes. And as the, you know, for the following couple of years, it fills up with members of TV on the radio and liars and our friends and stars from Montreal. And so it's like, you know, but everyone's at the very beginning and nothing's happened. We get a crazy break, which is that someone's heard our demos and someone in England, and we get the like star treatment of like, don't even play a show. The buzz is so insane, you know, for your music. Come over, we're going to make you a star. Sign a publishing deal, get a huge place on Charlotte Road in Shoreditch, which I just revisited when we were back and uh, kept going to Origin Coffee there. It was so good. Uh, but, right. uh, but different now, I would imagine. Yeah, although we were there right as it was gentrifying. So our rent was the place that we got was had been 70 quid a week. And then for us, it was three fifty a week, and now it's probably who knows what. Yeah, so you do a, quite a good turn in um, hanging out in areas that got heavily gentrified. Well, this is my <laughs> joke: is I think we gentrify ourselves out of neighborhoods because we kind of did the same thing in Toronto. And again, that'll be for our fourth podcast in our series, self gentrification. But uh, but yeah, so you know we're there; it's all happening, except that it isn't. And yeah, we've done the publishing deal, the managers, and the thing, and then it's like this is not going to happen. We were going to sign to Food Records. We loved Andy Ross, Blur. It was perfect. We're going to the Good Mixer. It's all happening. And EMI went, you know, when he went to sign us, they're like, we're not signing you, Metric, and you're not signing anything else. You just lost your funding. It was like 2000. The whole thing was tanking. And we had to go back to New York with our tails between our legs. But that's when we came back to that moment that everyone romanticizes, the like meet me in the bathroom moment. And all those bands are living at our loft and LCDs rehearsing, you know, their studios like around the corner. And we're in a position where we're just so fortunate, in my opinion, to be like so fed up with the music industry. So just like, I'm not doing demos for the rest of my life for these guys. We they're told us not you don't even need a band. It's like we're not, we don't want to be recording artists. We want to be real musicians. You know, that atmosphere is why we did what we did. You know, the strokes were making it sound and look really good to be a band again as opposed to like craig david you know like recording artist boy bands and stuff so mad josh and jules and then the adventure continued but you know it was hard because we had to 
you know, shelve all that work and start again. So Old World Underground was the restart and Grow Up and Blow Away, although it comes in third on the chronology, was actually all that bedroom music that we had done before. Who gave you a break in, the, in those days? Which days? In New York? New York and then uh, LA. Well, LA was amazing that we, again, sort of with this ethos of like, we're just going to do what we're doing. We got a residency at this crappy little club in, called the Silver Lake Lounge. And by our incredible good fortune, uh, Mike Andrews came there with a friend and he's a music producer who did the Donnie Darko soundtrack. He's done solo albums. I love Mike's work. He actually came to our 20 year anniversary show at the Roxy weeks ago. So it was cool. But yeah, so he was like, we get, we'll make a record with you. My friend Andy will put it out. And that was ever loving. And it started as a joy. Andy also came to the show. It was all love. And I think Mike did us the greatest service of like, he was like, your first album is so important. Let's do something bold. He saw what we were more than we did. Leaned into the new wave thing. So I would say that was definitely a break. It's really, really interesting hearing that because you had that whole movement inspiring you. But then you, you do need to bump into those people that are going to, I don't know, I guess it's just down to encouragement. I've got a good friend, Alex Luke. I know he was involved in your early days. So he's put in a question, which oh, was great. about, um, you know, knowing how hard you worked in those early days. And his impression of the first album, Old World Underground, Where Are You Now, was you kind of making it, not making it up on the spot, but writing very much in the moment. So Alex's question is, all the way through to now, and maybe on the Formentera records, are there songs that have just lingered in your catalog, either dormant or kind of half done for years and years that you've gone back to and crafted over the years? I Will Never Settle on the first Formentera album was one that was ruminating for years. And you know, I don't know what time span here is really relevant but who would you be for me was 2018 and didn't come out until 2023 but i feel like you know to alex's point a lot of things are of the moment but i think as a writer you always have these well perhaps it's just the way i work but like i always have fragments on hand and i'm pretty ruthless with like you know, I like to refer to it as almost like organ transplants. Like, it's like, if you need it, like I've got a pancreas over here, I've got a, you know, you, you, what do you need? And I'll be willing to rip the heart out of one song to like save another one. <laughs> okay. Visceral imagery, but I, get, I think I it get is, it. It yeah. is, right? But that's how I feel. Yeah. It's an intense way to put it, but it's how it feels. And so there's a lot of like what we call like Frankensteinian, like just the once even is a, is a Frankenstein. Frankensteinian mangle bomb is actually the technical term that we would use. So, <laughs> a mangle bomb. But, you know, of me being like that bridge section was another whole piece of music and just, you know, basically torturing people who have the technical job of amalgamating that with the other song. And I'm like, it can be done. And I don't care if it takes four days. And it did. And we did. Yeah. I mean, they're great songs. I Will Never Settle feels like it's a theme tune in a way. How come that took so long to get down on record? I don't know. Because every there's so much like internal competition with the songs between themselves. It's kind of like if there's a song around where there are other ones that are 
stronger, you know, like I will never settle with competing with, you know, Dark Saturday from Art of Doubt and and others. So it had to compete. It's kind of like, you know, I think of it as our friend Leslie Feist, the year that she got nominated for a Grammy happened to be the year that Amy Winehouse was nominated for a Grammy. So she didn't win. But if it had been another year, she would have won, I think. The songs are competing for the for the slot. Look, everything is competing with everything. I mean, I know artists sometimes don't see it as a competition other than with yourself. But I mean, you are competing with yourself and everything else and all of the world's content. <laughs> so. Yeah, and attention, indeed. <laughs> all right. So look, just I have to ask you this from the industry point of view. Everybody knows the story around you being proudly independent, but... What gave you the confidence or the conviction to feel like you had an alternative way of doing things back in those days? Because it was still all about signing to a label. You know, the Strokes did it. Interpol signed to a yeah, major. Yeah, all did, those you know. bands. Yeah, that's what's interesting, actually, is that, the, you know, sonically in that time, those bands sound so, you know, sort of leather jacket rebellious. And we were also outliers because... I know it's hard to imagine now because it's like very, it's a very synth friendly musical climate now, but people were like, what the hell is she playing? Like, what the hell is a sequential circuits pro one? And why is that at the front of the stage? And like, that makes you not, you know, punk rock or not rock or not garage rock. Right. So it was too pop in sonics to qualify, but in principle and ethics and behavior, we've always stayed in the lane whereas the sound the music that sounds like it is and it's it's totally fine like major labels totally work for some people just not for us so we were lucky because the manager that we had before the album fantasies you know we did like these ad hoc indie things that didn't take away too much and sort of didn't you know remove the magic powder from the butterfly wings or whatever but then we had a manager who was truly insane and incredibly dedicated to us. He was like, I will personally build this. You can put out your own records and we can put out fantasies worldwide. And I'm just going to do all the distribution deals and it's going to put you in such a great position for the rest of your life because you're going to own everything. And he's like introducing us to Daniel Lack being like, this is what's going to happen. And I remember we kind of blew him off. We're like, hey, what's up? You know, we weren't rude, but we're like, whatever. It was like a show where we were playing, like where Patti Smith played before us. We're like in this incredible environment. Frankly, we weren't business minded enough to be that, you know, but anyway, it's it, Who point was the is manager? Our manager. His name is Matt, uh, Mathieu Drouin, okay. a Montreal guy. And he was like, you can do this. And, and then, you know, he was... Luckily, the music that he had was strong because fantasies, you know, did really well. And we we broke records of getting billboard charting without a label and and found ourselves able to be so much more free in our ability to pivot as things changed. It did kind of fall apart because by you know, by the time we got to Pagans in Vegas, I think it was like pretty much simultaneous with us releasing that album that Apple went streaming, which meant that our biggest retailer disappeared. That was a major challenge, but we've still the fact that we own everything is the most valuable thing. The Art of Longevity is recorded at Cube West Studios in Acton and sometimes at the QB Studios in London's Canary Wharf. 
Cube is the world's first members studio for musicians, podcasters and content creators and it's a real sanctuary for London's independent inspired creators. It's a real pleasure to record the show here. So do you think that time when you made fantasies and that's on your label, it's your music, that was you crossing the Rubicon to longevity? Because you don't need permission from anyone then, do you? No, terrifyingly. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy and I are making the decisions which we're both like, we have no fucking idea what we're doing, but okay. <laughs> but how does that work as effectively the CEO of Metric? Because you are really, you are making business decisions in the end, or you know, commercial decisions. Yes. I mean, it's just, it's Jimmy and I with, you know, we're now with a new manager as an amicable end to our time with Matt. And we're really happy with our new manager. And we just have a very cool, tiny little team of people who are really dedicated to the idea that this music should be in the world. And, you know, it's daunting. And I, I recognize that our position is good, you know, but there is, you know, there are strong headwinds even when you're established in this way of just trying to keep that like, much like the economy at large, I feel, you know, yeah, sometimes it just feels like like music's like the canary in the coal mine with that. Like when the middle class disappears, you know, we're kind of the middle class of music and you want in your city to have the 3000 seat theater, you know, like venues, we sold out the roundhouse in London. And that was a really big milestone for us because of the numbers, but also because it's like, the legendary meaning of the roundhouse. It's, you know, it's not like, it's just so different from what we see and to not feel discouraged by the like, you know, just the hilarity of like, you know, Harry Styles doing 10 nights at Madison Square Garden. And, you know, we're like really happy that we, we played two nights with the Stones and that's like an amazing memory. But like, you know, you're not even at that point, it's almost understanding that you're not even in the same industry, which is to not take, take anything away from these massive artists, but there is a place in culture for the same way that there's a place in neighborhoods for restaurants. You know, like you don't go to your favorite 10 seat restaurant and say, like, yeah, it's good, but, you know, it'd be better if it was in an industrial space or if there were like a hundred franchises. It's good for what it is. So our challenge is to be like, I'm cool with playing the, you know, in the bigger markets, it's like in Toronto, we, we did like 12,000 tickets in Toronto. That's amazing. You know, doing like five to six in our major markets and then being able to suck it up and do a club show for a couple thousand people. It's okay. You know, but the infrastructure that's required for those venues to stay alive and for artists to have the means and the ownership to be able to make that structure work. And now you're hearing, this is basically explaining to you what being the CEO. Yeah. How much of the modern music business, so streaming and socials and all of that, is helpful to you as an independent, middle-class, self-owned, you know, small-medium enterprise artist? And how much of it is, is harder? I guess we'll never have the control group to know what could have been. Um, on the positive side, I just feel incredibly fortunate that my entire catalog my entire history, you know, even though Wikipedia is full of mistakes and it's really hard to fix, turns out, um, but whatever, just let it go. But generally, you know, the body of work, there it is represented and available at any moment to have a new life. And the reality is for us, there's absolutely no way that those early albums would be reissued or if they were, it's like, okay, they're on vinyl somewhere. Who is doing that? To me, the value of that just representation is huge. And then 
the socials thing is just it was such a hard thing for me to like accept that I was gonna have to do it's so upsetting I just made peace with it I work with someone that I love we work really closely and I just try to see it like curation of a gallery like imagine you just have your own tv channel or something you know to me the, the model right like the model that you have to give more and more the thing of like eroding your personal life like this is what is in my omelet like I, ca I can't and I was really scared at one point that it was going to mean that we were going to go under because I can't spend all my time when I'm not in the studio or on the road doing 50,000 selfies and like trying to tell people like what I had for lunch like so when, when I realized that we could build it our own way, I feel like people in the same on the positive side can find us. They can find their community around us and they can find us thanks to those, those platforms. But we did live through a time when you would, you know, put a sign on a telephone pole and people would find it and come to the shows, you know, or massive tours that, you know, pre-social media, it happened. But now I just feel like I can't imagine it any other way. Yeah, well, you were saying earlier, you know, that you play to people who are interested. And that's, I think that's a really good philosophy. It's like, you know, if people aren't into it or they don't know about it, well, that's that's their lookout. But at this point in time, would it be nice to have a hit? Well, it's funny because our radio performance is really good, like all comes crashing. And as the CEO, I should have all of these stats available for you. But to your point, like we've had radio success that has, done a lot with songs like all comes crashing and and others but we've never had that like that other le level and jimmy and i talk about this a lot of a sort of like almost just for kicks like next move i mean i feel really kind of queasy when you see the collabs and they're just so like they're like fucking major label play dates you know it's just like ew so if it works it's cool but like when it doesn't it's so cringy yeah, and you know, I think what you've done over the years, the okay, you've got you were pioneering in the early days anyway, so you took the business on because you didn't like the look of it, quite rightly. But where you've got to is actually where all bands need to be, because even when I talk to young artists now who are on the cusp, you know, they might have a million followers on Spotify, they feel like they're on the cusp. I'm like, on the cusp of what? And it's a well, maybe I could get into the charts, or maybe I could, you know, have a top twenty hit. I'm like, well, okay. It's here today, gone tomorrow. So what are you going to do tomorrow? So you don't have that hanging over you as a question. How do you feel you're set up for the future now? What excites you most about Metric's future? Well, in a way, to your point, we're in a unique position where I do think like a massive hit would translate deeply because it wouldn't be with no substance underneath it wouldn't be flash in the pan because it, i think it would just actually consolidate everything we've done and people be like oh no way great and and to, to us you know the value is the concerts so you know if the the whole thing is modular and scalable and i feel like say we work with a producer and it really it has to be a good song obviously but it's like if it's like you know what that's a great song and everybody loves it we have a bonafide hit and it translates into all these people wanting to go to the shows on another level that would open up a lot for us because even the acoustic thing we just did like the london paris berlin it was really deep and really cool but really small and if that can bump up to being 
the 3000 seater. And the other thing bumps up, just add a zero to each thing and not even thinking about the money because it would probably- <laughs> There's your CEO hat coming out. Yeah, just add right? a zero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, on the right end, it's very important that it's on the right side, not the left, by the way. That's Absolutely. zero. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah, good point. Well, it feels to me like you have built that quiet legend. And it's not just in Canada. It's amongst your fan base. It's definitely in Canada, but in a way, that's what you've achieved. And and that's a pretty good goal for anyone setting out in the business these days, beyond all the usual markers of success, according to somebody else, you know? Well, for sure. And it is not how you define it. To us, what we just did and what we're about to do of going to travel in these places and bring our music, you know, our way without the massive machinery that is usually required and the, you know, attendant sort of compromises, that to me is for us success. And other people, I totally get it if they have other goals, but um, it is, I really appreciate your recognition of, of what it is that we've built because part of it, part of its value is its invisibility. You know, it's uh, found foundational. Okay. So I've got to let you go now, but who would you rather be the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Uh, I'll say to you what I said to Lou Reed, the Velvet Underground. Okay. Yeah. yeah, cool. Emily, it's been so great to talk to you. I'm sorry that we've we've got to let you go. We ought to launch that Terry Gilliam podcast at some point. I'm not even kidding. Hit me up. I got time after you know, after this tour. I'd love to continue our conversations, Keith. It's really, really enjoyable. Uh, but it's been great to see you and, ha- and have you on. Thanks for coming on and wish you all the best with everything in the future. Thank you. Best to you, Keith. See you soon. Bye. Bye.